Hello, I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our third episode of China Uncovered, part of our broader China Transparency Project. The project and this series of podcasts are pushing for greater data-heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party by highlighting the work of our friends. For our third episode, we're talking about the Chinese Communist Party's lack of transparency and pernicious activities related to technology. I'm excited to co-host this episode of the podcast with Klein Kitchen, the director of the Center for Technology here at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome, Klein. Hello, Olivia. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. Um, Klon has a long history of working in foreign policy. Prior to joining Heritage, he worked on Capitol Hill as the National Security Advisor to Ben Sass. And prior to that, Klon spent more than 15 years working in the intelligence community. Klon, China's uses and abuses of technology have made world news. From Huawei to TikTok, from its application of surveillance technology to carry out its invasive social credit system, to using that same technology to rapidly collectivize and intern between 1.8 and 3 million Uyghurs, China is deploying technology to achieve its own authoritarian ends. Can you set the stage for our discussion before we bring in our outside guest, Emily Weinstein? What are some of the most important data-driven trends you've witnessed in the technology space? Yeah, so I think you've you've teed it up nicely. So I think one of the the kind of big picture items that we need to understand is that China is quite deliberately trying to prove a, a new model of governance, a type of um, technologically enabled totalitarianism, and that has both an inside uh, impact and an outside impact. Inside. Um, the uh, very explicit intent of the Chinese Communist Party is to leverage technologies and particularly near ubiquitous surveillance to um, first secure the government, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and then two, to uh, monitor and to manage any internal disruptions or risks, whether it be from political or religious minorities, like you mentioned with the Uyghurs, or just general kind of management of internal economic uh, processes and the like. Externally, they seek to use technology as an extension of the state in foreign policy and global economics uh, and the like. And so the, I think the key point here, and I'm sure we're going to get into all of this in, in more detail later on, but the key point here is that to understand the modern Chinese state is to understand this notion of a technologically enabled form of governance. And... Um, I think it's I think it's serious, and I think it's um, potential impacts on the on the global system, and on you know individual human thriving, are uh, are significant and worthy of further scrutiny. Thank you so much for helping us to set the stage there, Klan. Um, I think that's going to definitely come up throughout our conversation, many of the themes that you just highlighted. Um, it's now my pleasure to bring in Emily Weinstein. Emily serves as a research analyst at Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology, also known as CSET. 
Prior to joining CSAT, Emily was an analyst at Point Bello, and she's also contributed to important research projects at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Jamestown Foundation, the Global Taiwan Institute, and Project 2049, among others. Emily is also a fellow Georgetown grad, Go Hoyas, uh, where she received her master's in security studies. She also received her undergraduate degree in Asian studies at the University of Michigan. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Olivia and Klon, for uh, inviting me to speak. Yeah, well, we're so glad to have you. Um, can you share with us about the work and focus of CSET? And then can you maybe share a little bit about your seminal data work and reports on China, specifically the ones that relate to technology? Yeah, absolutely. So CSET is a relatively new organization at Georgetown. We were uh, started in about January of 2019. Um, so almost at our two-year birthday coming up in January. Um, and we operate at the intersection of national security and emerging technology. So our focus, our focus for the first year has been mainly on artificial intelligence and things associated with that. But as we move forward, we're hoping to move into other areas of emerging technologies. I think our next one at this point is going to be biotech, which um, will be certainly uh, a fascinating uh, turn to take. So I'm really excited for that. Um, Specifically, uh, my role at CSET, I focus on China tech, talent, and defense. Um, I've been looking at a lot uh, surrounding the concept of Chinese military civil fusion in the university system in China, uh, technology transfers, and overall Chinese industrial and science and technology planning. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, tech talent, Emily, and, and one of the reports that caught our attention was uh, on overseas professionals and technology transfers to China. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about that report and, and some of its key findings? Yes, so that report for context um, assessed a sample of 208 overseas Chinese professional associations globally to see if they advertised various connections to the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party. For example, if they advertised that they uh, transferred technology back to China, if they advertised that they were connected to Chinese talent plans like the Thousand Talents and others, um, if they contributed to large Chinese strategic plans like Made in China 2025 or things like that. Um, so once we did that, uh, my colleague Ryan Fidashik and I uh, went about kind of taking this data set apart and uh, digging through. So some of our key findings for this were that only about 145,000 people are members of the professional associations that advertise that they transfer technology to China. And we found that so 145,000 people is a small portion of the broader diaspora, which includes somewhere around 60 million people worldwide. We also want to emphasize here that this does not mean that these 145,000 people themselves are complicit in these technology transfer efforts. We looked at very much like a, a high level organization perspective. Um, in addition to that finding, we also found that 126 of those 208 groups, so 61% indicate on their websites that they exchange technical information to China. They work to bring scientists to China or they contribute to specific Chinese talent plans, like I said before. Um, and going off of this point, one of, I think, our biggest findings from this report that I think we'll have a great conversation about further down as well, um, are that the Chinese professional associations that advertised that they transfer technology uh, on their websites in Chinese 
were also more likely to omit information about aspects of their mission from the English language versions of their websites. Um, and I wanna highlight too, in the uh, appendix of this report, um, Ryan and I included a super uh, helpful resource for people who want to kind of go and look and do this kind of research where we included um, a massive list of keywords used to identify technology transfers in these cases. So we provided the English and Chinese. Um, if other people want to go uh, go about and try and rep replicate some of the findings that we um, are some of the things that we found. Okay, so that's really helpful. I, I, what I want you to do is some of our listeners aren't going to be as familiar with the idea of, of technology transfer. So if I could ask you to do two things. One, can you just explain that a little bit? Like what is a technology transfer and like, and, and why do the listeners of this podcast actually care in regards to the context of kind of China transparency? And then two, talk a little bit about um, how and, and in what ways the CCP is promoting it and, and, and why. why. Why is this valuable to the Chinese Communist Party in the first place? Yeah, no, great question. Um, so tech transfer has kind of become this buzzword nowadays. So it's great to kind of take a second, step back and kind of unpack it first. Um, it's, it, you know, technology transfer at its core simply refers to kind of the exchange of information and ideas, mostly related to science and technology. And not all examples of technology transfers are inherently problematic. And in fact, we note this in our uh, in the report that you've mentioned that in the, the United States previously argued that tech transfer could also help bring people, bring, I think the estimate was about a billion people out of poverty. This is citing numbers from a report from the now debunked Office of Technology Assessment um, in Congress back in the 80s. But they also argued that technology transfer could be used to woo countries like the Soviet Union into becoming strategic U.S. partners. So that's kind of like a, a, a historical uh, a historical assessment of technology transfer. But if we take it now in the current context of China, technology transfer in what I'm talking about reflects the Chinese government's aim to introduce, absorb, adapt, and eventually, I like to put quotes around this, re-innovate. There's a specific Chinese term that they use for it. Um, so they're trying to re-innovate foreign intellectual property and technology to benefit China's own indigenous capabilities. For context on this Chinese term for technology transfer, um, the concept has been written into Chinese policy for decades, but I argue that it became to, it began to take a more solid form with the 2006 medium to long-term plan for science and technology development, which, so it's a document that is supposed to cover 2006 up until 2020. So we're actually just at the end of the implementation period of this. But I have a great quote from the, I'll call it the MLP for short, because, uh, you know, China likes to have very long names for all of their policies. Um, but they actually say in the in the MLP that they aim to, quote unquote, perfect the technology transfer mechanism to facilitate the integration and application of industrial technologies. So here they're right kind of straight saying that they want to improve their ability to transfer technology into the integration and application of industrial technologies in China. All right. So, Emily, is it correct to say then that China has concluded that if it wants to be a a, an influential power, both from an economic standpoint and certainly from a national security foreign policy standpoint, that it recognizes it needs to have uh, a, a significant, if not a leading technological capability, likely across a number of different industries. And that to realize that, they feel like one of the best ways that they can do that is to go out and transfer intellectual property and other technology knowledge 
into China from other nations and that they have a deliberate plan to do that and that that plan is actually working. Yes, to all of that. And I have a few examples, too, of things that they use, of different tools that they use to facilitate these technology transfers. Um, for example, we have things, we see things like university science and technology parks. There are science and technology business incubators across China designed to incentivize foreign companies to come to China and sh share that proprietary know-how and technology. And that's also one key thing that I want to emphasize as well, that this technology transfer is not just the transfer of a physical technology, but also the transfer of specific uh, scientific knowledge or um, specific uh, mechanical know-how or things like that. Um, so it's not always easy to capture, um, at least from a U.S. government perspective, because it is so almost like the concept of the deemed export, where it doesn't really have a physical body, but it is still so crucial. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, you mentioned earlier that um, the first year of CSET has been primarily focused on artificial intelligence or AI. Can you talk just a little bit about China's AI program? Tell us like how and in what ways their program has been applied, specifically in the context of the pandemic of COVID-19. Absolutely. So I, I have to begin by with a caveat saying that my knowledge of China's AI program as a whole is pretty limited. But Back in August, I did write a piece um, that analyzed a small selection of China's AI industry and how it was contributing to COVID-19 relief efforts from the perspective of the Chinese government. And I say that because the report that I wrote discussed um, a specific report written by a Chinese government think tank called CAICT um, that is under the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology and was doing research on how China's AI companies, both state-owned and ostensibly private, were contributing to um, COVID-19. So I like to kind of uh, begin with a caveat of that, that this is not an all-encompassing um, assessment of China's AI capabilities. But let me give you a kind of a little brief overview of my findings from this report. Um, so in order to do this research, I broke the companies assessed in this report into four specific AI categories. The first was surveillance and public health monitoring, the second was medical imaging, third was robotics, and fourth was human-computer interaction. And some of these categories like medical imaging and robotics are relatively self-explanatory, but I thought I'd give uh, one interesting case involving surveillance and public health monitoring because it pulls kind of on the human rights side of AI and emerging technologies. So the example that I have here that I wrote about in this report centers around a Chinese state-owned company called Potivio. And Potivio developed something called uh, their AI close contact catcher that, according to the Chinese government think tank who wrote this report, says that it utilizes cross-camera uh, pedestrian re-identification technology to comb through large amounts of video footage from around an entire city. Um, and the Chinese government think tank stated that the system can discover, quote unquote, unauthorized abnormal behaviors by quarantined officials and carry out real-time warning. So in, in typical Chinese government fashion, it does not go into any more detail other than, you know, quote unquote, unauthorized abnormal behaviors. So it doesn't define what these abnormal behaviors are. And this to me was so alarming because it, it hits on the idea that ostensibly these behaviors could be completely unrelated to COVID-19 and more in line with the CCP's efforts to monitor citizens. Because, um, I mean, I had a conversation with um, one of my colleagues, Dahlia Peterson at CSET, who, by the way, does great work on Chinese surveillance technology. And she actually just published something this week. So I highly recommend 
um, you, you two and your reader or your audience uh, check it out. But um, there's really, I mean, in saying unauthorized abnormal behaviors, in the context of COVID, we think of that as, okay, maybe just for quarantined officials, it's, are they going outside? Are they going to the grocery store? Are they, you know, doing things that are not in line with controlling the spread of COVID? However, this could also be interpreted as unauthorized, as in they are interacting with people they shouldn't be interacting with. Or in the case of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, are we worried that it's just being used to give the Chinese government a further excuse to monitor Uyghurs in their homes and things like that? Um, so I just thought I'd throw out that example because it, it really stuck out to me. Mm, that's so really important to highlight that. And I know even in my own work, um, looking at Uyghurs, there was a really seminal report that came out from Human Rights Watch where they reverse engineered the IJOP surveillance system that um, Chinese security forces were using to monitor Uyghurs. And as you said, this quote unquote abnormal behavior could be as simple as somebody exiting out their back door instead of their front. And that could be viewed with suspicion. This is ordinary human behavior. Mm -hmm. The Chinese Communist Party is deeming as potentially dangerous. So I'm so glad that you highlighted that. Um, and I think this really segues nicely into my next question. Earlier on in our conversation, Emily, you mentioned that CSAT really sits at the intersection of national security and technology. And I think tech policy itself has really far-reaching economic, national security, and human rights implications. So I'm really curious about how you see these themes interwoven within your own work, um, especially given my own background in human rights. I'm always interested in highlighting the ways in which human rights violations can be systematically studied and documented. So how have you seen trends emerge in, in this area in your own work? That's, that's such a, it's a great question. It's a loaded question. So let me see if I can kind of um, break it up and uh, answer it well. Um, so I will say, uh, especially looking at AI and surveillance, it's hard to ignore um, the human rights implications, especially in the context of China. And, you know, we're not to say here that China is the only one abusing certain types of artificial intelligence to monitor citizens, to uh, abuse personal privacy, things like that. But, you know, from my perspective, as someone who studies China, um, it's it's so important to highlight. Um, one of the things that I think has been so um, great about technology and looking at human rights has been the ability to really use the open source to find as much as you can and kind of expose these human rights issues um, at a higher level. Um, I know you mentioned Human Rights Watch, and I, I think the other one that I wanted to mention too was an individual named Sean Zhang, who has done fantastic work on Xinjiang just via like Baidu maps, Google maps, looking at like high level geographical like maps and things like that, um, and satellite imagery to kind of piece together the story of what's happening in Xinjiang. Just being able to utilize the open source, especially in the context of China, is so important because China is, at least from what I have seen, they like to think of Chinese language as the kind of almost like first level of encryption. And they think that if it's written in Chinese, it's going to be harder for people outside of China to find. Um, so if you have the skills and the language capability to go about and like look for the look for this information online, um, 
it's so helpful. And it's so, it's usually easy to find, well, I say easy, relatively easy to find things. Um, and I think that, at least in the China policy community and the China research community, just looking at what people in the open source have been able to find and publish has contributed greatly to the discussion of human rights, especially with emerging technologies and surveillance. Yeah, so I want to highlight something for our listeners and just and just kind of underline and underscore the point that one of the things that I think helps separate CSET and the work that it's done and doing is how data-driven it is, even particularly in terms of Chinese language data. And, and that is, it is a peculiar uh, challenge. And CSET, I think, especially at this intersection of technology and national security, is, is really driving the conversation forward in a way that, frankly, few others can. But on that, Emily, I want to I want to talk about that challenge that's at play when you're trying to collect data on China, because we know that that the CCP generally is a little bit of a black box. They have strict, stringent data controls in place. Uh, you do have the challenge that's just inherent to the Chinese language. Um, are there any challenges that you think differ from traditional data collection and, and how you guys are approaching it at CSET? And just unpack that a little bit, kind of think out loud. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's so funny. Doing open source research in Chinese is almost like an art in itself. I, I laugh when I say this, but you almost kind of need a very unique set of skills to do research in Chinese. And honestly, even people with the language capabilities need to know how to do it right in order to find the right things. And you really need to um, have a solid understanding of the context in which you're looking for things because the Chinese internet is full of for lack of a better word, it can be full of crap. You have to kind of weed through a bunch of garbage before you can find the right things and really know what you're looking for. Um, in addition to that, one of the biggest issues that I've had, and I'm sure so many of my colleagues have had this issue as well, is the phenomenon of uh, Chinese articles and reports online and links disappearing. Um that has been a huge issue, especially when it comes to wanting to publish and make these stories more public. And, you know, if you add your footnotes and you add links to things, a lot of the time, as soon as it's published, if you go back and check your uh, sources, a lot of the links will have disappeared. So this was something that I found super frustrating. And it's kind of turned into this whole, whole idea of, I mean, I know I have... Uh, folders and folders and uh, jump drives filled with PDF versions of my sources. Um, I'll try and print sources if I can to make sure I have a hard copy. I will, um, the internet has great resources for archiving. Things like Wayback Machine, Archive Today are great. So you can archive a site and use a link to then go back to an archived version of it on the date that you saved it. Um, so God forbid the actual website disappears, you have a saved copy. Um, I think those are some of the biggest struggles. I think the last thing too, when doing um, data research in Chinese is that you really can't take things at face value. Whereas with other things, I mean, I guess this is somewhat of a content of the same issue with Russia or other big authoritarian regimes, I would say, is you have to be able to, you have to have the background knowledge to be able to understand what they're saying and understand that you can't necessarily take that at face value and you need to contextualize it. Um, so I think, I mean, there, there are so many things that come up in trying to uh, navigate the fun world of uh, Chinese data online. But I think too, um, oh, my last thing before I forget too, I have to pitch 
one of the wonderful pieces of CSET. Our data team is fantastic. They are so helpful in anything to try and um, comb through the Chinese internet. But one of the things that we have actually at CSET is an in-house translation team. Um, so whenever we can, if there's a, you know, a long Chinese document, for example, the think tank report that I discussed in the context of the COVID AI piece, what I did there was I sent about 50 pages of a report to our translation team and got an English translation back. So I was able to, you know, take a look at it from the Chinese perspective and then kind of double check my translation with a professionally translated version. Um, and I like to pitch the um, translation capability as well because uh, the public and you all at uh, Heritage and other think tanks and policymakers feel free to submit things to us for translation. Our translation pipeline is open um, and we want it to be like a really helpful resource for everyone, not just our team at CSUB. Yeah, and you guys do a good job of, of, of posting onto your website the various government documents and other pieces of research that have been translated in, uh, into English uh, from, from Chinese language. Uh, and I've, I've referred to that multiple times. So, okay, is, is the Chinese government responding to CSET's research and findings? I mean, have you, have you guys noticed any type of engagement from the CCP? So we've seen maybe a little bit. I would say um, our director of strategy, Helen Toner, she actually uh, coined a, a whatever the Chinese term for CSET is and has, I think, um, some type of notification or a Google alert set up. And I think maybe once or twice she'll get like a little pop-up that's like, oh, CSET wrote about this somewhere in Chinese. I don't think we've we've gotten to the level of official government anything like that, um, at least reporting wise. Um, I know, like I said before, the issue of losing sources has happened frequently um, after we've published things. My colleague, Ryan Fedashik has actually done a great job at, after he publishes a report, he will sometimes go back and actually see how long it takes for some links to disappear, which honestly is a really great practice that people <laughs> who are doing this work have the time to do it. Um, it's really fascinating to take a look at. Um, personally, since I've been at CSET, I have not had any kind of direct interactions or direct issues. Um, I have had, you know, like I'm sure many other people in the China policy field nowadays have struggled with, I have, you know, had WeChat accounts from when I lived in China that have been deactivated. I have um, tried to set up WeChat accounts again and had those deactivated, you know, multiple times. So I think that's probably the closest I have gotten <laughs> to being contact with the Chinese government, but I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me as CSET continues to grow if we get a little bit more of a reaction. Yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, almost every person who we have talked to has said that there are obviously challenges um, to data collection with the Chinese Communist Party. But that trend of the Chinese Communist Party pulling back that data, pulling back that information after reports are published um, is just so common. It's it's good, I think, for our listeners to to know that. But many mm -hmm. of our listeners are are you know a part of the policy making community, and um, maybe they're thinking about areas that they could be researching themselves. What areas of Chinese tech policy do you think are under researched or really merit some additional attention and work? Oh, that's such a great question, Olivia. Um, I would say you know. Over the past few years, and again, I'm I'm more on the um, newer side to uh, the Chinese poli the China policy world um, as like an early mid career professional. But <laughs> I would say, from what I have seen, 
there's such great work coming out of the China policy community on individual aspects of the Chinese system. For example, there's great reporting on military civil fusion, great reporting on tech companies like Huawei or iFlyTech and some of the human rights issues with iFlyTech or the Huawei connections to the Chinese government. There's great reporting on Chinese universities, but we lack kind of the glue that puts this all together. Like what does the Chinese S&T ecosystem look like with all of these pieces tied together? So I think, and I mean, this is something that I'm trying to work on as well, but I think we as researchers need to find a way to show how all of these elements work in tandem and really build out the whole ecosystem and not just the, indiv- not just the individual parts. As important as those are, I'm not saying we should throw those to the wayside and forget about them, but really try to incorporate them into the larger scale. What does China's policy system look like? So, you know, starting from something like made in China 2025, going down to then, okay, who is writing the policy? Who is implementing the policy? Where do we see academia falling in there? What companies are involved? And like really kind of mapping out the whole system, like I said. And I feel like this is the best way then that we can be more confident in our assessments and then can therefore provide a more comprehensive and more cohesive set of recommendations and information to policymakers. Mm, Well, sounds like there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration within the China space, within the tech space. So I'm I'm glad that you highlighted that. Um, So our podcast, as you've probably noticed, is really focused on highlighting the data-driven elements of various policy issues. But I always like to conclude by asking our um, guest what action you would like to see in response to the findings of your report. Because I think that, you know, there are ways that policymakers can really make good use of the incredible and important data that you're collecting. What, What ways do you believe policymakers can best make use of your data? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think, Quan, when you mentioned kind of the unique uh, set of skills that CSET provides, I really think CSET's data-driven analysis really, again, sets us apart and should be something that policymakers are paying attention to. My goal, at least in writing and publishing, is really to lay out all of the information on the table for a policymaker in the most digestible fashion so that they can make the most informed decisions based on like I said, the primary source, Chinese documents straight from the horse's mouth and not via, you know, secondary assessments, almost like a game of telephone. Like we want to give policymakers the data, you know, right as it is, like as raw as possible with, you know, obviously some context, some analysis, but really make sure they're seeing it as it's written. Um, At this point, our relationship with China is at such a crucial moment in history. So we really need policymakers to be ready and equipped with the knowledge they need to, you know, really determine what this relationship is going to look like over the next decade, you know, 20, 50, 100 years. Um, That being said, I do hope that policymakers will use specifically my data and research to find ways to safely and effectively maintain our relationship with China and the Chinese people, despite all of the kind of um, chaos and disruptions in the relationship, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, For instance, I know some of my colleagues at CSET have been doing some incredibly insightful research on the extensive contributions to US S&T development by Chinese students and scholars, and how detrimental it would be to our own innovation base here in the US if we were to block these individuals from studying and working here. Um, So I I do hope that policymakers take things like that into account uh, when making um, policy decisions moving forward. 
Well, thank you so much, Emily, for giving our listeners a better understanding of, honestly, the Chinese Communist Party's lack of transparency in the tech space. I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in delving more into your own research and into your own reports that you reference. So we'll be sure to link those in the notes of the podcast. I also want to thank Klon for facilitating our conversation today and adding additional color to what exactly is going on in the tech space. And finally, I just want to thank our listeners for tuning in to our third episode of China Uncovered, a podcast dedicated to pulling back the veil on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. Be sure to stay tuned. Um, two weeks from now, we will be bringing you another episode of China Uncovered. This time, we'll be discussing the Chinese Communist Party's manipulation of soft power and their infringement on media and internet freedom. So be sure to subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We hope to see you next time. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.